This week we'll look at Psalm 74, a psalm of lament that comes after a tragedy, not a tragedy to one individual, but a tragedy to a whole community. The whole community feels the sting. As with other weeks, we'll have a five minutes children's sermon at the end of the video. So if you have a Bible, follow along with me as I read Psalm 74. I'm just going to read the first three verses here at the beginning, and then I'll read the last two, and then we'll pray that God would be our teacher as we study this psalm together. So Psalm 74 begins this way. A mascal of Asaph. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. And then picking up in verse 22 and 23 at the end. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, well, the tragedy we face now is different from the tragedy they faced then. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We call on you to arise and come to our help, not because we deserve it, but because you are good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a meme going around the internet of pastors and churches, and a few of you have even shared it with me directly, and I saw it myself just looking at different things on the internet. And the meme is of Chris Farley, the late comedian Chris Farley, um, He's in what appears to be a church, and he's just kind of convulsing, excitedly walking down the aisle. And the caption says something like, every pastor the first Sunday back to church. And I get it. I'm looking forward to being with you and, and not filming in front of a live studio audience of five or six of us. I'm looking forward to that moment when we're full again. But think for a moment with me about that first Sunday when we come back together whenever it's allowed to happen. And rather than it be an exciting time, a time of rejoicing, instead it's a time of weeping. I'll explain. It's that Sunday morning at 7.45 and the worship team begins to arrive at the church building except there's no building that morning. From the highway, each member of the worship team, as they're driving towards the church, they can smell smoke but don't think much about it at the time. At midnight, someone has entered our church building, poured gasoline across the pews, and lit 
a match. And now there's only ash. The worship team parks their cars. Uh, They get out and huddle together, not sure what to do, confused. Then at 8.30, the greeters arrive. They too just stand and stare. And then around 9 a.m., those coming to the first service arrive. A few people think to themselves, why, why are there no police officers? Why is there no firemen or neighbors around? A father holding his son, his young son in his arms, points to where the stage is and says, that's where I was baptized. His voice begins to shake. Another person says, that's where I became a Christian. A wife grabs the hand of her husband says, this, this, this is where our marriage was healed. This is where children heard the gospel, and it's gone. Now, in most of our lifetimes, although not common, a number of minority churches have been burned to ashes. And in a sense, yes, I'm referring to the 50s and the 60s and Jim Crow era, but I'm also referring to the 90s when so many, over this stretch of time, so many churches were burned to the ground that the government had to enact the Church Arson Prevention Act in 1996, which President Clinton signed into law. But back to our church, around 11 a.m., those coming to second service, they gather with those who are already there. And then with all of us there together, suddenly, I know this is strange, but think with me for a moment what this would be like from the churches or from the, or the neighborhood, kind of houses surrounding the church building, an army descends upon us, capturing men and women and children. And we're taken not to Dolphin County Prison, just a few minutes away, but we're Brought somewhere to South America, a place we can't identify, a place we've never been and never wanted to go. And again, I know this is crazy, but just go with me for another minute. There in exile, a few of our worship leaders gather together. So Ben and Noah and Susan and Matt, and they write a song. And then they bring all of us together And here's my question. What does that song sound like? Is that song in a major key or a minor key? What are the lyrics? What themes? What biblical motifs? What truths does the song contain? What is that hymn? Or I should say it this way. How does that hymn describe us? How does it describe God? If all of that happened, our song, our hymn that we sing together might sound a lot like Psalm 74. Because all of that did happen, only worse. Three times the nation of Babylon attacked the nation of Israel with the final and most devastating attack coming in 586 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar sent his army to besiege the city of Jerusalem, which strangles a city until they have no more resources and they give up. And God's people eventually did give up after months and months of being strangled. 
And when they gave up, the army invaded, destroying the city and desecrating the temple. Huge portions of the population were then carried away into exile to Babylon. And it's this, this dark, painful background that lies behind Psalm 74. As a general rule, I don't think we, you and I, are good at lamenting. There are exceptions, but in general, you and I are not good at lamenting modern American Christianity. Maybe Israel wasn't all that good at it either. Which is why God inspired her poets and prophets, her worship leaders, Asaph and David and others, to write nearly 50 psalms of lament, hymns of lament, so that not only they, but all of God's people throughout time could learn to better seek the Lord when all around our soul gives way. Maybe these laments are there to help not only them, but our fragile community call upon the Lord to arise. Let me briefly walk through a few portions of this psalm in more detail and see ways that the Lord calls us and in fact invites us to be better lamenters. First, we see that lamenting deals honestly with our pain. I want to look again closer at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, and then verses 9, 10, and 11. They go like this. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs, meaning the signs of military standards or banners in the place of the temple banners. Verse 5, they were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood, that is the carved wood of the temple, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. Coming down to verse 9. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the fool Excuse me, the foe to scoff. Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. We might phrase verse 11 differently. We don't talk of hands folded in garments. We might say, God, why do you have your hands in your pockets? And just sit around watching TV. Don't you see what's happening? Are you watching the news or infomercials? Again, lamenting well requires honesty about our pain and our predicament. To our detriment, again, I don't think... We do this well. We feel this magnetism. We feel this pull towards being positive and encouraging and uplifting. And that's not a bad impulse. But we feel it to an extent that it squashes our ability to speak honestly about our situations. When a doctor runs tests and finds that the problem is serious, 
We're not helped when doctors treat cancer with Advil. And this psalm shows us how to be honest with our problems, how to name them to God. Have you lost your job? Has your business been curtailed significantly? Do you have an elderly loved one who's in a home and you can't visit them? Has your wedding been dramatically changed? Are you single and feeling lonely and, or feeling lonely already and now everything feels so much worse and not only can't you leave your house to do normal functions, you're working from home if you're even working. Name that pain to God with unvarnished honesty. Well, not only does lamenting well require honesty, we also see that it requires community. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2a. We read, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation. Note the plural nature of what's said, us, congregation, sheep. Here sheep is used as a collective noun. It's, it's not just one sheep, but, but sheep, a flock, like the way we sometimes use fish or deer. It can mean one or it can mean many. Here it means many. Whether misery loves company or not, the sheep have community. Us congregation, sheep, banded together in common communal lament. They share not only the same tragedy, and this is important, not only the same tragedy, but they also share the same convictions about God and hope in the gospel. This is why we call Psalm 74, it's not just in the category of psalm of lament, it is, but in the subset of a communal psalm of lament. Again, across this season of Lent, we're trying to grab different types of lament. And this is a communal psalm of lament. I don't know how good we are at this either. The sharing of the pain in our hearts with those who share not only similar struggles, but those who share similar beliefs and hopes about God. Our church is named community for a reason. Now, maybe in some ways it's just kind of aspirational or as a goal, but that name is intentional. Community is essential to the Christian life. It's not just this extra thing we add for a little more pep in our Christian life. Community is essential. And yet here I am, I'm preaching to largely an empty sanctuary. Given that things can't change, at least for the moment, still we need to find ways to build community. So we're doing video conference calls. I'm doing meetings throughout the week with people. Perhaps you on your own could set up other meetings. I'm doing our small group tonight. I'll say tonight. This is a Saturday. But Sunday night together over video conferences. We're doing Bible studies that way. The women's Bible study that meets on Tuesday afternoons. We're now starting Sunday school classes that way. The youth are meeting at 11. The adults are meeting at 11. You can grab the link for that in our weekly email. But you don't have to wait for us. Please help us foster community as much as we can. We also see in this passage that lamenting well means embracing 
our humility. So naming our pain, doing that in community, and also together embracing our humble state. Consider some of the details and the metaphors used in this passage. In verse 1, the people call themselves sheep. Now it's one thing for God to call us you know, he's the good shepherd and, and we're his sheep. And that's great. But it's another thing for us to embrace for ourselves the name sheep. Sheep are not lions. Sheep have no claws. And everyone I've ever heard who's talked about farming sheep will say that sheep are dumb. Which might be lost on me as we talk about sheep, although I've heard it. But I tell you for certain, it was not lost on the original audience when they call themselves sheep. In verse 5, they speak of enemies swinging an axe like someone who swings in a forest of trees. God, I want to fight back and I want to be strong. But I know that I'm as defenseless as a tree to a chainsaw, we say. And then in verse 19, which I haven't read, but it's there if you want to look down at your phone or your Bible. In verse 19, we pray that God would not let his loved ones be delivered to wild beasts. Again, something similar. Before the enemy, we are not strong. We are not confident. We're like a tiny bird, not even a bird of prey. The presence of wild beasts who want to tear us to shreds. It's like the cages open at a zoo. I don't think we lament well because of the humility required. We, we assume that maturity in the Christian life means taking the posture of strength and having all the answers. I know I do. Imagine a small group leader, the the leader of a group, sharing that he feels like God is distant and that he's angry with God. Now, is that a group you could be in? Like, are you uncomfortable if the leader of the group starts talking that way? Now, there's a certain level of spiritual health required for church leadership, but that's not what I mean. I mean, could... A generally healthy leader share that she's in a dark season. A time when she feels like her prayers just bounce back at her off the ceiling. Could a Christian business leader confess that he has no answers? He doesn't know what to do. He's angry and upset about having to lay people off. Could a mother share that she's struggling to love her children? Could children share that they, they just want their parents to stop fighting? Could, could, could high school students just say, I'm, I'm angry that my prom was canceled? A pastor's supposed to have all the answers. Supposed to know what to do when a pandemic strikes. And I just, I just want to say, I don't know. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. But, but no one here really has the answer. But, but mark this, for those who embrace humility, there is hope. God has set up salvation in such a way to exalt the humble. All we need is to acknowledge our need. All you need do is acknowledge your need. 
Which leads me to the last point. Lamenting well means making the turn. Lamenting well means making the turn. So not just naming our pain, not just doing that in community, not just um, embracing our humility. It also means making the turn. Which is to say, we have to affirm the Lord's deeds and His character and ask the Lord for help. Good lamenters, when we are biblical, are not simply Debbie Downers. So someone says, I read that, that all this social distancing, as hard as it is, it's, it, it's like the flattening the curve. It, it, it's getting smaller. And then someone says, yeah, but Costco's still out of toilet paper. <laughs> well, lamenting well means making the turn. Which is to say, lamenting well requires not just being honest about our pain and humble in our circumstances, but affirming the Lord's deeds and His character. Making the turn is often done in the Psalms of Lament. Not by looking at the present circumstances that are right there in front of us, in our lap. But by taking a wider look at God's grace, the panoramic of His redemptive work across time and in history. Look with me again at verses 12 through 17. Look what the community sings back to God. Verse 12. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. So, so when they had no water in the wilderness, the God's people in the Exodus, as they're wondering, God provided a way. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Then when they come back across the Jordan, in the book of Joshua, verse 16, Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. This hymn links together God's sovereignty over creation. So sovereignty over the day, sovereignty over the night, sovereignty over the summer and the winter and the streams, sovereignty over the boundaries of continents, sovereignty over scary sea-like, monster-like creatures. And it links together God's sovereignty over creation with God's work in redemption, the work specifically He did in saving His people from Egypt from their slavery and it links these two things together God's rule over creation and his salvation that took place in Egypt and it links these together because in God's salvation from Egypt he was sovereign over creation with 10 plagues to show his power finally even as they were chased he splits the sea and lets it fall back again Behold the panoramic of God's grace and power. God did rule and does rule over creation. Even the scary, untamable parts of creation. When enemies feel as big as Egypt. And over a virus that's as scary to us. As a giant squid was to the captain of a small ship. 
Lamenting well requires us to see God's love for his people in his wider works of redemption. For Christians, this most certainly means that we see the love of the good shepherd in the gospel. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 11. We know God loves us not because we are married, not because we have a job, not because we have health, not because whatever circumstance we can see right in front of us is either good or bad or hard, but we know, we know that God loves us and he is the good shepherd because he lived and died and rose and ascended to the throne of the universe and he promises to come again. I want to close by reading a paragraph from the famous book, Mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis. He's also the author of the Narnia series. If you haven't heard of Lewis or Mere Christianity, probably maybe you've heard of the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this. Imagine yourself living, or excuse me, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That paragraph could land on us cheaply. I know the circumstances that some of you are going through and it could land on you cheaply. Well, he's remaking us and it's a house and we don't understand. Except also know this detail that mere Christianity was not written first as a book. It was written and then spoken in radio lectures in England during World War II. Let that land on you. He, he wasn't... Speaking to people who kind of were indifferent to the hardships of life. They were people whose houses were being raided by bombs at night. I don't know all that God is doing now among us. But even when it hurts, we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. And we are his sheep. Or to use another metaphor from the panoramic of redemption. We know that church that he's building is the new temple. Which Jesus is renovating into a glorious palace. Where we will live and he will also dwell. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that though... What we can't see or understand fully what you're doing in the panoramic right now. We can look to the past and see your gospel. And know that you are for your people even when it hurts. 
Lord, may your promises, your good news promises of your strength and your sovereignty and your goodness and your love and care for your people land on us with power this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.